Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Amender here, and we are back for another episode from our Atrial Fibrillation series, which is a comprehensive multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions of stellar fellow leads and expert faculty from a variety of programs led by co-chairs Dr. Kelly Arps, Cardiology Fellow at Duke University, and Colin Blumenthal, Cardiology Fellow at University of Pennsylvania. This episode tackles the assessment of stroke and bleeding risk with Dr. Elaine Heilig. Stay with us. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This series is supported by an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb and the Pfizer Alliance. Of course, all CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. We have collaborated with VCU to provide free CME for the episode. See the episode page for the link to claim CME and relevant disclosures. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. And with that, let's get nerdy. Hey, cardio nerds. It's Colin Blumenthal back with Amith Goyal. We cannot wait to continue our exploration of AFib with today's episode, a discussion on baseline assessment of stroke and bleeding risk. Anticoagulation is one of the most important therapies we can offer our patients with AFib and flutter, as stroke is a potentially devastating and preventable complication. How we choose who gets anticoagulation is crucial so we can balance their risk of stroke and bleeding. To discuss this monumental topic, I am honored to be joined by Dr. Anjali Wagle who the diehard cardio nerds will remember from episode 153, the CNCR from Johns Hopkins with Dr. Nick Smith about diuretic resistance, which was maybe the most popular cardio nerds episode of all time. She is now a recent graduate of the Osler Internal Medicine Residency Program and newly minted cardiology fellow at Johns Hopkins and FIT Ambassador. Anjali, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Colin. I have the great privilege of introducing Dr. Elaine Heilich. Dr. Heilig is a professor of medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine and is the director of the Thrombosis and Anticoagulation Service at Boston Medical Center. She is deeply involved in the world of anticoagulation and atrial fibrillation and is section editor for Thrombosis and Hemostasis and has served on the executive committee for numerous trials and registries, including the Aristotle and Orbit AF trials. Welcome to CardioNerds, Dr. Heilig. Hi, great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Dr. Heilig, thank you so much for joining us to teach all cardiners about AFib with regards to the assessment of stroke and bleeding risk to help guide our therapeutic decision-making in our quest to prevent strokes. We are all so excited to learn from you as you have done a ton of work in this particular space. Anjali, how about we meet some patients in the Cardiners AF Clinic to dive right into this important topic? All right. So our first patient for the day is Mr. Chad Bass. Mr. Vasque is a 70-year-old male with a history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, congestive heart failure, and coronary artery disease complicated by STEMI, status post-remote PCI, no longer on DAPT, who was recently hospitalized for palpitations and was found to have newly diagnosed atrial fibrillation. His PCP mentioned that he may need a blood thinner and he wanted to discuss this during our visit. 
Dr. Heilig, how would you approach anticoagulation in Mr. Basque? We know that AFib causes strokes, but can you mention how does this really happen and how do we determine an individual stroke risk? How can we use this to determine when a patient requires anticoagulation? So thank you for that. And this is such a common scenario. I think a lot of our patients initially present in the outpatient setting. And what do we do with these patients when we feel the pulse and it's irregularly irregular? You get the electrocardiogram and lo and behold, the patient's in atrial fibrillation. For me, having devoted, you know, most of my career to anticoagulation and stroke prevention, I feel very, very, very strongly that patients really need to be on an anticoagulant. I mean, obviously, unless there is some really serious contraindication to the anticoagulant therapy. You know, I say that because the strokes that we studied in the early 90s and certainly later were large strokes. And when I have patients in the office who are saying, oh, come on, not another medication. I'm already in my, you know, Medicare donut hole. I'm paying out of pocket for some of these medicines. The mortality of a stroke that's related to atrial fibrillation is about 24% at 30 days. And I think that's staggering. You know, think about that. So a quarter of individuals who sustain a stroke related to atrial fibrillation will no longer be with us at 30 days. So those are the stakes. And I look at the ischemic stroke risk, and we'll get into a little more detail about CHADS, CHADS VASC, its strengths and weaknesses and whatnot. But you have to start somewhere. And, you know, I think it's absolutely critical that everyone who is seeing patients on the front line of care today needs to understand how to apply these scores because this is, as I said, it's a starting place. I mean, this gentleman, the 70-year-old male, his CHADS VASC score is high. I can tell you if he was my patient in the office, he would be leaving with a prescription for an anticoagulant because I really feel that, you know, the day-to-day risk, although it's low, you just never quite know when that patient may sustain a stroke. So, I use the CHADS VAS score, and I think that it has some issues, and we can talk about that. The one thing I do want to say and really emphasize to everyone who's listening is I think we approach stroke prevention and stroke etiology, the pathophysiology of stroke and atrial fibrillation. I think it's really complicated, like the real physiology. And I think that we tend to sort of make things easy and simplified because that's the way we can get this in guidelines and have this on population-based medicine type of things. But when you remember back in medical school how a thrombus forms, I always go back to the Verkhaus triad because it makes sense to me that when you think about Verkhaus triad, of course, that is also playing a role in the left atrial appendage, probably also in the left atrium. And so what are all the forces that are happening there? Well, you have the stasis, you have hypercoagulability, and you have endothelial dysfunction. And I think that these three entities that have to come together in some way, something is not functioning well in that patient's heart that they're able to form this thrombus. Endothelial dysfunction really, I think, is a critical one. Do we all have the same protective genetic predisposition with nitric oxide, for example? I mean, how do these things differ among individuals? 
So that it's easy to say, oh, you know, Chaz Vask, it's just not a great score. And it doesn't surprise me that it's not going to be a really super great score because I do think there's a lot of things that go into the formation of that clot. What causes that clot to grow? Um, what causes these clots to get organized? Um, what causes that clot to actually flip off and fragment and embolize? And I think all of these things. You know, we really don't have a good understanding on uh, all those forces that are at play. But, you know, what we do know, and I think there is very solid evidence, like I think we forget, where did we start in this field? I mean, to me, way back when, when I was your age, where did it start? Well, remember, we didn't even appreciate that atrial fibrillation was associated at all with stroke. I mean, imagine that. Um, the nomenclature non-valvular atrial fibrillation, I mean, really came into, I think, existence, must have been 70s and the 80s, certainly 90s, where people appreciated that if you had rheumatic valvular heart disease, you know, the rheumatic fever, you know, all of the things that change that mitral valve with rheumatic mitral stenosis, there was well-known association with stroke with that entity. But it wasn't appreciated really at all that if you didn't have that rheumatic valve, patients had this atrial fibrillation. Well, we have to worry about that. And I really have to, you know, you, you say you stand on the shoulders of those before you. But um, when I think about the, the CAFA, SPINAF, uh, SPAF1, SPAF2, you know, BADF, I mean, all of these or early trials that definitively showed that if these individuals are not offered anticoagulation, that the stroke risk was really significant. And these were strokes that gave rise to that mortality of 24% at 30 days. You know, now fast forward to the year 2022, and I think a lot of our controversies now really center around paroxysmal AF. I think those early studies, and we can get into this, but the earlier studies, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, think back then, there weren't monitors. It wasn't easy to identify sporadic AFib. So a lot of the patients that got enrolled in those trials had persistent or permanent AF. So I think whenever you're asking, well, is the CHADS VASC applicable today? It's a very interesting question. I would say emphatically yes, but I think that we could do better. Because I do think populations are changing, particularly with our knowledge around paroxysmal AF and this whole notion of AF burden, which wasn't really appreciated in those early studies because the patients who tended to be enrolled would be with permanent AF already. So a little bit different of a population. So hopefully I answered part of your question. That was just absolutely phenomenal. That was such a good whirlwind introduction to honestly a lot of the points that we're about to cover in this talk. So I'm so glad you brought all of this up. And I really think bringing up what the stroke means for a patient, talking about that really high mortality, how these are very large area strokes with them being embolic strokes, really adds a, a valuable patient dimension to why this is so important and why we really need to aggressively make sure that our patients are, are on anticoagulation when appropriate. And, and just to summarize basically what we talked about with this case so far, 
With a Chad's Vasca 5, with his risk factors being his age over 65, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, congestive heart failure, and coronary artery disease with a previous STEMI and PCI, he would have a Chad's Vasca 5. So he would clearly be, as you said, a, a high score, clearly above the cutoff of two in men or three in women to qualify for a anticoagulation. So that was just a phenomenal review of the Chad's Vasca score for our patients. And this risk score is one of the most ubiquitous and beautifully simple algorithms in medicine. And you already touched a little bit on some of the historic details of the risk model and how it was created. And I would love to learn more about this because I think learning about how it was created can really help us understand how to apply it. First, though, I want to briefly remind everyone what makes a good risk model, as I think this will be important to the discussion overall. In short, there are three key features that make a good risk prediction model. First, it addresses a clinically relevant question. Second, it can be used to change management for those patients. And third, it is user-friendly and easy to implement and calculate. If it requires information that is very difficult to obtain or is very complicated to calculate with 20 or 30 different portions of it, then it really doesn't matter how accurate it is. It's going to be very difficult to use clinically unless it's incorporated in more intensive ways like automatic electronic medical record calculations. Additionally, in making a good risk model, you have to consider if the population used for creation and validation is representative and reliably captures the exposures, outcomes, and predictors, as that will drastically change how generalizable the model is. And you had already touched a little bit about this in talking about the difference in patient population historically. So put simply, you can only apply risk models to populations that it has been proven to work in. So after that brief tangent, the CHADS 2 VASC rose to prominence out of a potpourri of many, many risk models that were created in the 90s and 2000s, some of which you already mentioned the trials for. So Dr. Heilich, how was the CHADS 2 VASC created and validated, and what can we learn from this about how to properly apply it? So let's talk about the CHADS score first, because that's really where I think it started, although you're correct in saying that these risk factors had been known. But I think the creation of a score and the beta coefficients that you get from these models and how do you assign one point versus two points, if I'm not mistaken, the original CHAD score was derived from a hospitalized uh, cohort of patients, I believe, who had atrial fibrillation and who had sustained a stroke. The original score, the CHAD score, was created by Brian Gage, really an incredible internist, epidemiologist, methodologist. And I have to say that he really used the rigorous study design to try to capture what risk factors were prominent um, among that group that had sustained a stroke in atrial fibrillation. And I believe it was across six states that it was not based on the ICD-9 codes of looking in EPIC or some other computer model, but these were chart reviews. And remember when you're all doing your research, I mean, paying chart reviewers is very expensive. So, but the data, I do think that he was able to glean from that very detailed-oriented study really gave rise to the CHADS score, and that was congestive heart failure, hypertension, age, I believe 75 and above, diabetes and stroke. And with prior stroke, just like what's the strongest risk factor for another DVT, it's having had a prior DVT. I mean, there's something about the history of stroke, the history of a DVT 
that is telling you that there's something maybe about that individual's endothelium or venous valve structure or whatever that's like heightening their risk for these things. Because no matter what model you assess or review, I mean, that prior stroke is always one of the highest, as is age and hypertension. So we used CHADS. We were happy with CHADS. I mean, CHADS was just moving along. And then if you look back, it actually would be a really great little review paper to write. But if you look at the uh, American Heart Association guidelines over those years, I can't, I'm going to say maybe like 2000, something like that, probably about 15 years ago or so, they almost always included what they called minor risk factors if you look through the circulation document. And they included female sex, they included coronary artery disease, and they included age. 65 to 74. And the reason that those for many, many years never really reached the level of the CHAD score is that they were not validated um, as consistently across different populations as that CHADS. So I think what happened, and I, I want to say Greg Lip in UK uh, with CHADS Vast, but I, I think researchers were trying very hard to work those risk factors in because we all knew, I mean, common sense, that your stroke risk is not going to suddenly skyrocket on your 75th birthday. I mean, we all knew that there must have been some continuous association with age. But, you know, what's the cutoff? Like, when do you start saying, wow, now this risk is really high? And so I think that that 65 to 74, we knew it biologically, it had to be there, but we just weren't able to repetitively demonstrate those three minor risk factors. But that's really how the Chaz Bass score came into being. And I, I had heard one story because we're all, you know, colleagues here. It's, it's just interesting that the original Chaz Bass was a serum creatinine was what that SC, I think initially was, was what that was hoped to demonstrate. But this whole female sex has just not been a strong enough risk factor across all of these different populations studied. And I think that was the reason that really never got into the CHAD score. But the CHADS VAS, I do think it added some important information about that lower risk group. And remember, I mean, this is all going on at the same time as warfarin was the only available anticoagulant. And having spent most of my career understanding that medication, I mean, it does have, you know, incredible benefits, but it also has a lot of difficulties, not just the INR variability and certainly interference with vitamin K rich foods and other things, um, but the need to be monitoring that medication and trying to keep within that two to three range. So that one says to oneself, well, has the threshold to offer someone anticoagulation over the years? So the CHADS VASC identified the lower risk group. You have to say to yourself, um, a 2% risk of stroke, I mean, that's two out of 101 in 50. Like, is that where you would put the threshold of offering stroke? I mean, if that were me, I would say, no way. There's no way that I would want to have a one in 50 chance of having a devastating stroke. So 
you know, I think that lower risk group that the Chaz Vask, I do think nicely identified was an important contribution because it allowed individuals who perhaps for whatever reason had a higher bleeding risk, we could perhaps not push as hard to get those patients onto an anticoagulant. You know, it's fascinating is if you go back and look at the original CHADS derivation, I'm almost positive that the definition for congestive heart failure was a hospitalization for decompensated heart failure within two weeks or a left ventricular ejection fraction that I believe was less than 40 so you should, you know, back me up on that and take a look, but I'm almost certain of that. And because I've often been amazed at how we have applied the CHADS and we've applied the CHADS VASC now with heart failure when it's a little bit of a different definition than what was originally used in the CHAD score. Great. Thank you, Dr. Heilig. Yeah, I think we certainly are more liberal with how we define heart failure in uh, using this risk score. But Understanding how these scores were derived really helps to understand how and when to properly use these for our patients. But what about the converse, when not to use them? Dr. Heilig, in which populations is the chats 2 vasc not appropriate for use? Well, I mean, that goes back to clinical trials, randomized trials. When you look at all of these studies with the DOACs, uh, Rocket, you know, Aristotle, uh, Engage, all the studies that Dabigatran rely you have to look at the population that was studied. So what patients might I not be able to apply a chads vast score with great confidence? Well, that's easy because if you look at the table one, of all of the studies, especially in the, the DOAC era, you can see that we, I would certainly be applying the chads vast score, but with not the same confidence as I would with those that were enrolled. For example, we know that we have lacked racial diversity within all of the, the DOAC trials, and we are trying as a investigative group to understand this at the national and international level. So I think that's important. Clearly, there are other subsets of patients, the, the amyloid group that are definitely at higher risk of stroke with atrial fibrillation. It's easy to identify the patients that weren't included um, in the trials. Certainly the moderate to severe mitral stenosis. I mean, those patients were excluded from the studies. And I I'm not exactly sure why they were excluded. I think because the baseline risk of stroke was just so much higher that you wouldn't be enriching your population of this old nomenclature of non-valvular AF. And it's not like echocardiograms were universally available and being done around the world back in the, the 90s. So you couldn't be rigorous in, in excluding or including those patients. So certainly uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, amyloid, younger individuals, although I think the baseline risk of stroke, no matter what your age, is fivefold the risk of stroke for that stratum of age. So I don't know. That's an interesting question who I wouldn't apply it to. The difficulty, I mean, having spent my career in research, it's not easy to enroll patients who, you know, it's a rarer entity. And I think that to have the number, the power 
that you would need to really demonstrate uh, risk, benefit, efficacy. It's very challenging. And kudos to trialists because it's definitely a challenge to try to get folks in studies, staying on drug all the way through the trial. So, um, but those would be some of the groups that I think, you know, I would, I would probably deviate from the CHADS VASC. So it sounds like just to review, there are many specific populations that we can't specifically apply the CHADS-VAS score to, including, like you mentioned, patients with cardiac amyloid, HOCAM, valvular AFib, as these weren't necessarily included in the original derivation or validation. Especially given these patients are thought to have higher clotting risk, they are often put on anticoagulation regardless of their CHADS-VASC. I feel like this is so helpful because knowing when to not use risk models is almost equal to, if not more important, than knowing when to use it. On that vein, all risk models have strengths and weaknesses. Dr. Heilig, what are some other strengths and weaknesses of the CHADS-VASC score? The strengths of CHADS-VASC. Always remember that when you do a training set and you're looking at a population and you develop a model and then you validate it, you're always going to get the highest ROC. That highest fit or predictability is going to be within, obviously, that population that gave rise to the score to begin with. You know, I think some of the, the challenges of Chad's VASC is I personally believe, based on, again, just all of the studies and, and the extant literature, that the stroke risk, in addition to the Chad's VASC factors, probably changes. It's probably temporal. Like, why do I say that? Well, Look at COVID, look at the atrial fibrillation that occurs after infection. What's the correlation with pneumonia and AF and stroke? If someone has truly decompensated heart failure and they have PND or thopnea, their volume overloaded, there's more left atrial stretch, maybe their oxygen level is low, the anaerobic SIP system, mixed oxidase anaerobic enzymes are dysfunctional? Is that a particular concerning period with stroke? And I, I think it's so difficult to study this, but these types of things would give you a hint that the endothelial dysfunction changes. We know that for a fact with COVID. What other things that commonly happen to people out there that might change that CHADS VAS, maybe the CHADS VAS score, they have that. It's static. It's dichotomous. You have heart failure. Yes, no. Hypertension. Yes, no. You have the SAGE. You have diabetes. Yes, no. All of those things, it's, it's forced to be binary, which I think is, is one of the weaknesses. But let's give credit where credit's due. I mean, to study in vivo biology with these changing things, I think, is, is really a, a a difficult task. And I think to give the Chad's VASC group some credit, they've kind of come up with an, an average score across these different entities. You know, I'm often asked when I give a talk, well, does it matter that my blood pressure has been amazingly well controlled for the past seven years? Like, is my hypertension, yes, no, the same as someone else who's had really poorly controlled, suboptimally controlled hypertension and every time they come in, it's, you know, 180 over 110 is non-adherence an issue with some of that. So 
And then, I mean, we could just go on and on about all the biomarkers and how do we use troponin, BMP? Is anyone using those to to try to refine the risk of the lower risk group, like of that group that has about a 1% risk of stroke per year? Can you fine tune that a little bit? And I do know that there are studies ongoing now in the, you know, ASUS world, again, stepping a little bit for a second outside of AF. But they are trying to drill down which of these strokes, this embolic stroke of unknown source, which of those strokes might actually truly be cardioembolic, but we're not capturing the AFib. The notion of an atrial myopathy, the fibrosis that occurs within the atrial tissue, probably that is what's leading to the endothelial dysfunction. Clearly, when you have fibrosis intermingled with your myocardial sarcolemma, or I'm not a basic scientist, but you know what I'm saying, those fibrils, clearly your conduction is not going to be normal. Your contraction isn't going to be normal. So what I would love in the next five years is to really better understand the remodeling that occurs and how that's correlated, the endothelial nitric oxide, like how do these all interrelate with one another and do they change with different changes in a, in a patient's circumstance, things like infection, things like hyperglycemia, things like decompensated heart failure. So, I mean, we could really pick on the bleeding scores because I think those are the ones that are really misused in practice. But I think for now, until we we better understand left atrial appendage morphology, I mean, do we want to be putting in the chicken wing and cauliflower and all of that? Like, where does that fit in? And I think these are all very reasonable questions uh, for your generation to figure out because, you know, that's the question that comes up there is some of that is sophisticated technology. I mean, these are very specific, you know, whether it's MRI and you're not necessarily going to be able to be offering that type of refinement or sensitivity to, to all of our patients around the world. And I think that the CHADS VAS can be universally applied and sure it misses the mark a bit with that ROC of about 0.68, I think is the highest I've ever seen. But there's, I do think that there's, there's real benefit to it. That was really fantastic because I think it really just shows how many factors go into this and how few of those factors are actually included in the CHADS 2 VAS score. And you mentioned a couple of the weaknesses just because you had brought these up. The C statistic not being very high. I think you had mentioned 0.68 as being the highest, though it may be not the best way to judge predictive ability. Obviously not a great C statistic or correlation. And another weakness being there are newer scores that actually exist, such as the Garfield AF score that are more accurate, but they're just very difficult to calculate. And then to summarize some of the strengths, I, I thought it was very interesting when um, doing the research, looking at the derivation of the, the CHADS2 VAS score, is how it actually does a really good job at separating those who have strokes from those who do not. So 0-1 have very low risk of stroke compared to 2 and higher, which wasn't necessarily the case in the intermediate population with the CHAD score. And, and, you know, that's really the clinically important question here is should the person be on AC or not, even if it doesn't quite 
correlate for every point exactly what their their yearly stroke risk would be. And it's also, you know, the other major strength is it's really easy to calculate. You can calculate it in your head. It's really easy to memorize what all the factors are because it's just spelled out of the name. It's it's very easy to apply. So kind of building off of that, Anjali, how's our patient doing? And I just wanted to kind of take this back to the case and see what's going on with with Mr. Vasque. All right, great. So let's go uh, back and check in on our patient. So just to recap, Mr. Vasque is 70 years old, has type 2 diabetes, hypertension, CHF, and a previous STEMI. So as Colin mentioned, his CHADS Vasque is 5. He was therefore recommended to start anticoagulation, but now he's worried about his bleeding risk. Dr. Heilig, we've had such a great discussion about assessing stroke risk, but what is your approach to assess bleeding risk and how do you weigh stroke versus bleeding risk in decisions around anticoagulation for patients with atrial fibrillation? And then a second question is, does it matter if you are going to start warfarin or a DOAC? So the the bleeding risk obviously is important, but I you know, I've been in practice for quite a while. And when I think about for myself personally, or my family member, most patients really do not want to have or experience a debilitating stroke. So you have to think about where do you start the discussion? Or how do you think about risk benefit? And how does bleeding fit in? And there have been papers published on patient surveys and different like you know for example there was one paper and i'm uh, gonna apologize i can't uh, remember the authors but it was interesting because when they surveyed patients patients were willing to experience 3.4 gi bleeds before they would experience an ischemic stroke in atrial fibrillation so The way I practice is I discuss these things, obviously, with my patient. We are never going to get away from the bleeding risk with our older patients. Just without anticoagulation, the GI bleeding risk particularly increases with age. You know, I think that the big advance of the DOACs compared to warfarin. I mean, obviously, you didn't need to be tethered to coming and getting your INR drawn and all of that, but it was really the intracranial hemorrhage was just incredible, 50% reduction in intracranial bleeding, which I would argue, um, you know, at the podium, that an intracranial hemorrhage to me is, is much more akin to the devastating sequelae of an ischemic stroke and atrial fibrillation. So that when you look at these trials, you need to, you know, think hard. Now we across the the DOAC trials, and I think a lot of this we we championed and wanted the ISTH uh, definition of a major bleed. And this is important because a lot of people don't remember or realize this, but the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis, a group of vascular came up with this definition that was being used in the venous thromboembolism trials back in the 80s and 90s. And it was, you needed to sustain a bleed in a critical space, which is obviously intracranial, pericardial, retroperitoneal. So either a critical space or it needed to be an obvious, you know, the bleed is happening now um, that's associated with 
at least a two-unit blood transfusion or a two-gram drop in the hemoglobin. That was the definition of a major hemorrhage. It's fascinating to look at the Timmy definition of major hemorrhage. Now, remember, Timmy, not to get too far afield, but it's just how do you look at these different statistics and results when you read them in the, in the journals. So Timmy major, major bleed is a five gram drop in hemoglobin, the Timmy score. And a minor bleed is considered a three gram drop in hemoglobin. So the atrial fibrillation trials, as well as the venous thromboembolism trials, I think use a really conservative two gram drop of hemoglobin to identify a major bleed. And I think it's important. I mean, you're all smart. You're in school residency fellowship. Know these definitions because it helps you interpret the data. So the HasBled score, let me just briefly talk about HasBled. So HasBled really looked at all aggregate ISTH uh, major bleeding. So it's including epistaxis that was associated with a two gram drop. It's also looking at, you know, serious GI bleeding, obviously. It's also incorporating the much rarer intracranial hemorrhage. But just it's important to uh, bear that in mind that HasBled is really predicting or trying to risk stratify, you know, individuals who might have an, that aggregate major, major bleed. So it's not at all just looking at intracranial hemorrhage. So that one of the challenges with HasBled is that many of the factors, as you know, that are in the chads VAS score are also in the HasBled score. So how do you figure out bleeding versus ischemic stroke risk when some of the features are the same, like age, I believe prior stroke, I believe hypertension, so the way that I apply that in, in my practice is I use it to almost as a checklist, like, well, why are you also on aspirin? Or, you know, we really need to transition you off that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory because that's really going to increase your risk of GI bleeding. Um, you know, we really have to have an honest talk about alcohol because, you know, the alcohol consumption, the binge drinking on the weekend is going to lead to gastritis. You're going to end up with an ulcer. You're going to have a, a GI bleed on that basis. So, I mean, I'll be honest with you. That's how I really use HasBled as I look through each of those factors, drugs, alcohol. I can't change age. And I just make sure, you know, that the patient, uh, you know, fall risk, we could spend an hour and a half talking about fall risk. I mean, the, the goal is to try to get patients obviously as stable on their feet as you can. But if my patient comes in even with a walker, I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, I'm not going to give you this prescription. Because what am I saying when I'm not writing the prescription? I'm basically saying it's okay if you have an ischemic stroke. I mean, I can't live with myself with that kind of a decision. I mean, we now have, you know, left atrial appendage occlusion is an option, I think, important option. It seems to be getting safer and safer. And I think that's very important. But prior to that, there was really nothing that you could really offer someone. So 
you know, I, I guess to sort of summarize, I mean, I think bleeding risk is obviously very important. Our patients are fearful of it. It's scary when you have a diverticular bleed at home and you're looking in that bowl there and it's like filled with, oh, this is scary. This is psychologically scary. There's no doubt about it. So our job is to try to minimize the, the risk of a patient sustaining a bleed. And that's what I work hard to do. But, you know, I would be honest with you. I very rarely calculate a has bled score to decide if my patient's going to be eligible or a candidate for an anticoagulant because it's just not that precise. It's predicting aggregate major bleeding, not just intracranial bleeding. And I think a lot of the factors overlap with ischemic stroke. And, you know, we talked about what isn't included in Chad's VASC. Well, your clinical acumen, you know, this is why you went to medical school, residency training, you know, your fellowship, your clinical acumen. We don't have anything in that has bled score, right? About the platelet count of less than 50,000. The patient with, you know, an elevated INR when you do baseline labs, like, well, what about those patients? There are there's subgroups that in your heart that you're really nervous about some of these individuals and, you know, they're not necessarily in the has bled. So my point is you still need your clinical acumen to, to make a decision about whether this is really a smart thing. You know, an individual who has AVMs, you know, I think that these can be very challenging. You know, right-sided heart failure, you get that pressure built up. The AVMs can bleed. This is the patient that has, you know, the three GI bleeds. I mean, I would never, you know, keep offering anticoagulation for a patient that had that type of recurrent you know, bleeding diathesis that there was nothing that I could really offer my GI colleagues you know, could not really offer something to that patient to stop that. And I think, you know, that's hopefully that kind of answered your question. But when you think about the most noxious agents that our patients take without even thinking, I mean, aspirin, when it's not really indicated, thank goodness that the literature around primary prevention for coronary artery disease has really, I think, come full circle from 20 years ago that we're not telling people to just get on an aspirin a day because I do think in the older patient population, there is a lot of bleeding risk on the basis of, of aspirin use. So I do think getting away from aspirin has been a real positive of the last decade, especially when there's an anticoagulant that, that really needs to be started. Dr. Heilig, I totally agree. I think one of my favorite parts of being a physician is using all of this data and science that we talk about in medical school, like you mentioned, and using it to improve the care and well-being of the patient in front of us. And so I, I just really appreciate how you discussed how patient-centered this decision is and wanted to reiterate the survey you mentioned that describes that most patients actually fear the clot more than the bleed. And so we should really be thinking about the patient in front of us to drive shared decision-making. So going back to our patient, while chart reviewing, Mr. Vask you see that the telemetry during his hospitalization showed an atrial fibrillation burden of about 10%. In episode two with Dr. Friedman, we discussed some aspects associated with atrial fibrillation burden and stroke risk. And I wanted to touch on this again, as it is such an important topic and area of active research. 
So Dr. Heilig, is there a relationship between AFib burden and embolic risk? And should information about this burden factor into our decisions around anticoagulation? Well, this, this is clearly a great, great area. I think this is still um, understudied area. I think we're hopefully getting closer to an answer. Um, I think we have uh, many different modalities now to better quantify when patients are in atrial fibrillation and not in atrial fibrillation. But the weakness, I think, a little bit of that argument is just like completely, you know, accepting that AF and stroke are absolutely temporally related all of the time. And, you know, I'm not 100% sure of that. I think there is some conflicting data. It was interesting because I think it was the ASSERT study in Canada where initially they didn't see an association with the AF bursts and the stroke. But then on a subsequent analysis or paper, or I think Jeff Healy again, when they looked specifically for the subtype of stroke that would be embolic, you know, then they did see an association. So another, I'm going to use the word conundrum in this field right now, is that the definition, not to really make this complicated, but the definition of stroke has changed. So that all of those studies, like I had said before, the SPAF 1, 2, 3, CAFA, SPINAF, BATA, you know, they use the definition of a stroke in these studies that was a, a 24-hour neurological deficit that correlated with a vascular territory. TIAs were not included because they're just too nonspecific. So the definition, I mean, everyone was on board with the change in the definition. I mean, really kind of looking at imaging, hopefully there was some, some neurologic deficit. It certainly didn't need to last 24 hours, but there was a correlation with imaging. And now we have, you know, I think very sensitive instruments that are able to pick up clearly infarcts, but how do we, are they the same infarcts that we're like trying to make sure isn't from the AF, the 24% mortality at 30 days? Like I raised this issue at a, a conference that we just had outside of Washington, D.C. And I think, you know, everyone is starting to wonder, is the definition of stroke changing such that severe, severe embolic stroke? might be somewhat biased almost toward the null now that we have these very sophisticated instruments. But anyway, I think that's just yet another story. But the AF burden, I can remember the trend study. There were several other studies. And now we have, I believe it was KP Rhythm and several others that are showing that burden seems to matter. I believe it does matter. It certainly should matter. Why should it matter? What does AF burden tell me? It's telling me that there's something, either it's correlated with the underlying disarray of the conduction fibers in the heart. So maybe it's infiltrative, maybe it's fibrosis. But AF burden may be a marker of endothelial dysfunction. And I think, you know, these are some things that would be really great to try to figure out. I often mention the Utah fibrosis score because I just think that was elegant and interesting research where you did the sophisticated imagery of the 
the left atrium and, and based on the fibrosis, uh, they were able to demonstrate that there is a correlation association with stroke depending on the amount of fibrosis that was within the left atrium. You know, that's interesting. The other incredibly interesting field, we haven't talked about what we can do to try to keep our patients out of atrial fibrillation. And here again, I mean, please read the work of Prosh Sanders in Australia, incredible investigator who has clearly shown that we should really not even be offering um, ablation to patients if their BMI is over 30. And there's, a, I think, just a ton now of data looking at the effects of epicardial fat and adipokines and the inflammatory aspects of obese adipose tissue that surrounds the heart. And to me, that's also interesting. And these are the questions that, you know, you all need to answer. I mean, Prosh was able to show that when you very tightly control the components of the, the metabolic syndrome, that these patients had reduced burden of atrial fibrillation. These patients lost weight. Their inflammatory markers started to normalize. Now, one would say, well, Elaine, come on, like how likely is this in the real world that you're going to get individuals to focus on triglycerides, their waist circumference, they're going to lose weight, they're going to get their A1Cs perfect. Well, of course, this is a, a dream. But it's still from the physiology and the biology, it's hitting us in the face that we should also be addressing some of these other cardiovascular metabolic syndrome, you know, lifestyle things that I think would also help our patients hopefully reduce their burden of atrial fibrillation. Now, you asked me, should this be included? I don't think we have that exactitude at this point. I don't. I really, I want to see larger studies, well-designed studies that, that really, really answer this question because I still think it's a little bit all over the place. And, and as I said, part of it, is it true? Is, is it right to say that there is an absolute association with atrial fibrillation, a burst of AF and stroke risk? You know, is that the side that we want to be on or, or is that still a little bit of a question? Because, you know, Maybe the AF sets up the stasis and that's when, you know, the clot starts to form, but it didn't really embolize yet. I just think, like I said, it, it's, it's too bad we can't all shrink and just like live inside someone's heart to see what's really going on in there. But we can only look and observe and make associations. And I think, you know, we've done a pretty good job of doing that so far. That was just absolutely fascinating. This is an area that I actually like personally find incredibly interesting. And as Anjali mentioned, we had a great conversation with Dr. Friedman in episode two about this very subject. And I would recommend everyone also listen to, to that episode as well. But to briefly summarize that and then build off of it, we discussed how multiple early studies similar to how you just mentioned did not show that patients with implanted loop recorders who had a stroke had an episode of AFib that preceded their stroke. And this brought up the question that you so eloquently talked about, about causality between AFib and stroke, and the larger question of subclinical AFib, and if it's a marker for atrial myopathy that could be causing strokes, or if it's directly causative. And, and you already very beautifully touched on all of that information. And then more recently, a study by Dr. Singer and colleagues showed that with better statistical power, I think they had over 400,000 patients in, in their study, that 
most patients who had a stroke had an episode of 5.5 hours or longer of AFib within five days preceding their stroke. And that correlation fell off pretty rapidly with shorter episodes of AFib. So did seem to see that at least there's, there seems to be some amount of AFib that is correlated with stroke, though it's hard to say for shorter bursts of AFib what that, what that truly means. And there still might be this, you know, subclinical AFib that lacks a true temporal association between AFib and stroke. And this really brings kind of one question to mind with the rise of use of loop recorders and having all of this on-demand data. Say you have a patient who very infrequently gets AFib or say they're post-ablation and maybe you've substantially reduced their AFib burden with ablation. Is it possible, do you think, to do a pill-in-the-pocket sort of approach for anticoagulation? Could they take anticoagulation intermittently when their implantable loop recorder notices that they are having episodes of AFib? Or do you think that the temporal association between AFib and stroke is just not clear enough to have that kind of approach? Well, I mean, this, I think this is uh, obviously an interesting question and the study is, has been proposed. I, I'm not sure yet if it's, it has funding, but I, it may have funding. I'm not sure I have to follow up. I'll tell you, if it were me personally, let's say I'm the patient, I'm not sure our science is there yet that I would feel comfortable doing that because that's a really tight association that you would be proposing. Certainly the DOAX with the time of peak onset, two hours. I mean, this is amazing. This is how this whole concept came about. If you're in AF and you look and you have something that's telling you it's very accurate, it's not filled with noise, it's definitely AF, I can tell, I'm going to trust this device or whatever. And someone's pinging me from the cloud or however that works that, you know, I'm now in AF and I'm in Hawaii with my family, I can just take this tablet and within two, three hours, I'm going to be, it's going to be perfect. I think part of what we don't know is how, how long then does the stroke risk linger after that episode goes away? Um, is it dependent on, you know, the hypercoagulability of the patient? Is it dependent on the age of the patient? Is it dependent on, you know, we talked about the, the degree of left atrial flow velocity emptying, like all of these things. I mean, is it, is that what makes it all different for each of us, that it would be difficult to say that by day 30, after your brief burst of AF, you know, you're good to go. So do we tell patients to only take their tablet for those the 30 days, you know, I think we just don't know. I mean, I can remember, you know, I'm sure this is still the standard of care. I mean, you cardiovert someone and now they're in normal sinus rhythm. You still continue the anticoagulation for this whole uncoupling of the mechanical and the contraction of the atria. So I'm intrigued, I'll be honest, by pill in the pocket. I think this would be interesting. It would put a lot on patients to, I think, to to recognize the AF, I'm assuming they're the ones that are recognizing it because they're taking the pill out of their pocket. But I would be, I'm still not 100% behind it because I just don't think we have all of the answers. You know, the other thing I, I often tell this to the residents, although I've, I've come around to uh, not even believe myself, but let me just tell you this about epidemiology. We, we feel in, in the literature is somehow supporting that 90%, 95% 
of the clots, you know, come from the left atrial appendage. Well, that's interesting. Well, how do you know that? Well, think of, think about the screening bias. You know, when a patient gets admitted to the hospital with a stroke and you're trying to figure out, well, where's it coming from? And, you know, you look at the transesophageal echo and you say to yourself, ah, there it is. There's the, there's the thrombus. You know, I see it. But do we know that that was indeed the thrombus that gave rise to this friable, you know, bit of a clot that came from somewhere? And I, you know, even that I think is interesting how we've deduced that they all are coming from the appendage. I've kind of believed certainly most of them are coming from there, but we don't know what, what causes these clots to get organized and, and be endothelialized, and they may never budge out of there, and we may be really seeing a, a stroke that's, that's not even related to that left atrial appendage. So I think it's interesting. The one thing we, we didn't talk about, and I really do want to briefly mention this factor 11 inhibitor. I only want to bring this up because there are now trials, I think, that are starting or going to start that are looking at yet another target in the anticoagulation pathway, which you know, I was thinking, how is this possible? Didn't we solve all of this with warfarin? You know, haven't we gotten to a place less intracranial hemorrhage, don't have to monitor? You know, it seems like it would be accessible to to a lot of folks without, you know, warfarin. Although I certainly want to say that warfarin still has its place. I mean, we didn't certainly talk about warfarin. But this factor 11, you know, it's interesting. I mean, factor 11 is the factor that's really responsible for propagation um, of the clot. And they've noted that individuals with congenital factor 11 deficiencies don't bleed, which seems uh, unbelievable. There's less stroke, less MI, less DVTPEs they've noticed um, among individuals with congenital factor 11 deficiencies. And I think this, again, you observe in medicine, you observe things at the bedside that will generate your questions, generate your hypotheses. So someone got the idea, well, maybe this is a potential target. And if you look at the orthopedic surgery population, that's the way these studies always start with an orthopedic population. And it's been interesting because it looks like these, there's less bleeding than the standard of care in oxaparin, like I want to say half the bleeding in the orthopedic hip and knee population. But in addition to that, the clots that were formed were small. That's interesting. So, you know, I'm just summarizing by saying we don't even know that the most simple, simple things about a clot, a thrombus. And I think the next 10 years, we're going we're gonna to have a much better understanding of the interplay with inflammation and infection and stasis and and all of that for our patients, hopefully. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Heilig. Fascinating discussion and really brings to bear how much we still have to learn about this space. And for the audience, just to be very clear, this, this notion of a pill-in-the-pocket approach for anticoagulation for preventing strokes in patients who have intermittent AFib, is, 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 it remains experimental and we would not advocate for that right now. There is another context in which we may have to make decisions about anticoagulation, and that's one in the context of rhythm control. And we will discuss rate versus rhythm control in later episodes. But in Mr. Vask's case, we indeed decided for rhythm control and he underwent successful electrical version. And now fast forward three months when he returns back to clinic and he tells us that he since maintained sinus rhythm and very eagerly asks about stopping his anticoagulation. Dr. Heilig, this is a loaded question. Does the need for anticoagulation change with successful rhythm control? 
And does the method of rhythm control impact this answer? I think related issues that come up include how long after rhythm control might we consider stopping anticoagulation? And should we use monitoring devices to really guide this decision to make sure that we understand the true burden of AF after what we call successful rhythm control? Right. Well, this is this is a question that is really debated. You know, you have individuals who absolutely feel that this patient's been ablated and I'm confident, you know, I, I, I've taught the patient how to take their pulse or I'm going to give them, you know, some device that they can wear on their wrist or they can put their thumbs on or all these different things and I'm going to stop the anticoagulation. I mean, believe me, there are lots of folks. I believe the guidelines, I'm not sure that they will change, but they're still saying that, you know, even when you have normal sinus rhythm or sinus rhythm, you based on the CHADS VAS score, you know, you really shouldn't be stopping the anticoagulant. I think that that's likely still the case, certainly for our patient here, the 70-year-old with the Chaz Vast score of five. I would be nervous. And the, the reason is, is that none of the antirhythmic drugs are, are cures. I mean, even amiodarone, I think over time, there's about a 50% um, or 40%, you know, uh, recurrent AF. And we know from ablation, it's the same. So, you know, this is a tough one. If if you say that, you know, ablation can really be curative, can really bring individuals with eliminating 90% of the AF and their their Chad's vast score isn't 5. I do think it's a it's a personal maybe this is where personalized medicine, you know, but I I still think most physicians and you can offer what your institutions are doing. But I think if the CHADS VAS score is high, if the patient is overweight, I'm going to guess that their ablation will work. It will reduce the burden, but it's not necessarily going to eliminate the AFib. And that would make me nervous in someone with, you know, a high CHADS VAS score. But I think for that younger patient with a structurally normal heart, you know, there it, it I could I could understand. I mean, you're in your 40s. You had ablation. You don't have like this high Chad's vast score. I mean, I I could really see sitting down and and understanding uh, that that patient's decision and their points. And I I would probably go along with that. But I don't think you can make a universal sweeping statement about that based on you know just ignoring the Chad score and knowing that these entities are not cures. Great. That was so helpful, Dr. Heilig. Thank you. I'm glad we could help Mr. Chad Vask. So let's move on to our last patient, Ms. Lou Risk. So Ms. Lou is a 55-year-old female with a history of atrial fibrillation and hypertension. Her only medication is lisinopril, 40 milligrams daily. Overall, her Chad's Vask score is 2, which puts her in that borderline risk group with a score of one in men or two in women where anticoagulation can be considered. As we've previously discussed, though, the CHATSVAS score doesn't include all possible risk factors like AFib burden or other states that could be somewhat hypercoagulable like cancer. Additionally, as we previously discussed, DOAGs have a lower bleeding risk than warfarin, which may change the cut point of when to consider anticoagulation. Dr. Heilig, what is your approach to patients with a CHADS2-VASC of one in men or two in women? 
Are there any other risk factors like cancer that influence your decision to start anticoagulation in these patients? And does it matter what oral anticoagulation you are starting? Well, I think that the approach to these patients, you have to think about, well, what's the stroke risk with someone who has this CHADS VAS score of one? It's not negligible. I want to think it's about 0.8% or, you know, I think it's less than 1%, but still that's one in a hundred. But being on a blood thinner isn't fun. You do have to, you know, be a little, little more careful. How do I approach this? I think most cardiologists would look at the patient's left atrial function. I think that they may consider uh, left atrial appendage morphology. I mean, again, we're pulling in these other these other touted risk factors for stroke that may help in the decision to say you're a little bit higher risk. I mean, when we published the biomarker ABC score, I mean, part of that was, well, let's look at troponin and BMP. I mean, does that tell you something about cardiac function that we're not really picking up in this CHADS VASC score. And I think, you know, if, if these things start to accumulate, I know left atrial size has been kind of uh, dismissed a little bit in the literature, but, you know, clearly there are other markers of strain and things that I do think might push me to really try to get this individual to start an anticoagulant. You know, you raise a good point. I mean, DOEX versus warfarin, definitely. I mean, DOEX are just a very short onset of action, which I think is a great feature. You don't have to do this four days, you know, waiting, waiting, waiting for that INR to finally get up over two. When you have warfarin, it works almost immediately. These drugs are, are great. Remembering rivaroxaban has to be, you know, taken with a, a meal. That's just important to always remember. And there's also quick offset, which I think is a, another great feature. I mean, think about with warfarin, if you're elderly, let's say you're over 75, over 70, the half-life of warfarin is about 60 hours. Yes, six zero, 60 hours. So, you know, that was, you could probably get away with missing a few doses of warfarin with a half-life of 60 hours. You're certainly not going to have that with DOAX where the half-life is about eight to 10 hours. But, you know, it would, I think it probably would because I may not have to convince uh, a patient with the DOAX. I don't have to tell, you know, you can't eat all those salads all the time, or you got to eat them all the time. You can't eat them some days and then, you know, for three months, not have any. I mean, I do think dietary vitamin K clearly does uh, weigh into that as does the, I mean, let's face it, if it were me, I wouldn't like the burden of having to, you know, come in and get my eye and arm monitored all the time. So I do think that has changed the, the threshold of discussing anticoagulant. And even though like we know that the reversal in the, the throes of an absolute emergency, the reversal agent, I don't think it is quite as straightforward, uh, let's say, as adaricizumab is for dabigatran. But we know there's less intracranial bleeding. Uh, we know that the half-life is short. And so I think uh, those instances of really, truly needing a reversal agent will hopefully be very infrequent so that, yes, I would probably, you know, I'd have the conversation because the Chaz Vask, like I said, of one, it isn't, I do think that there's some level of stroke risk with that patient and 
It's just a matter of their their willingness and their their threshold. And with the bleeding risk in someone who's 55, that's going to be fairly low. Because most of the bleeding that we see, or I would say the risk of bleeding, really starts to increase probably over about age 65 and 70. Wow, these are such excellent pearls that you just can't find in the guidelines. So thank you. Building off of this, is there any role for aspirin without anticoagulation in patients with a low TRADS-FAST score, like in the case we discussed above? So I think that, you know, we've had so many studies, uh, including Averroes, that have clearly shown that aspirin is just really not the way to go. We underappreciate the harm of what aspirin does to the gastric mucosa. I think it increases the risk of bleeding. Um, and it really is not is not efficacious when it comes to preventing stroke. So I feel like when we offer someone an aspirin, that's one amazing, I think, advance in the guidelines over the last 10 years has, has really been the dropping of aspirin out of the pharmacopoeia, so to speak, of treating these folks to reduce stroke risk. Because again, it increases bleeding and really does not do anything to reduce or does a little bit to reduce ischemic stroke and AFib. So no, I would not be offering aspirin. Dr. Heilig, I've said this before, but this was an absolute masterclass in assessing bleeding risk and stroke risk in patients with AFib. My heart is fluttering just thinking about all of the pearls. Well, it's either that or the three cups of coffee. (laughs) This is clearly an area that you have worked a lot in. What makes your heart flutter about AFib and stroke prevention? You know, my mom has AFib. And, you know, being an internist that has, you know, had such a, and still having such an incredible career in the whole area of anticoagulation and stroke, it's fun to see how we're now moving out of persistent permanent AF. We're trying to understand what does paroxysmal AF mean. 15 years ago, pill in the pocket, like they would have, you know, said, "Um, it's time for you to give up your medical license. Uh, But it's interesting. And, you know, one quick story that I'm happy to share with you about my own mother. She was off an anticoagulant for, I want to say about, four days to have a colonoscopy because her GI physician just didn't feel comfortable with her being on any anticoagulant at all and wanted her to be off the anticoagulant. And it's incredible. My mom is a nurse and uh, she sat there in our living room and she said to my brother, I'm having a heart attack. And, you know, she knew the symptoms and had chest discomfort, was diaphoretic and You know, they called the ambulance and when she got to the um, ER, they took her right to the cath suite. And it was incredible because the interventional cardiologist sent me a picture on my phone of the clot, the jelly clot that they removed from her left circumflex artery. And he said, Elaine, your mother has the cleanest coronaries for an 89-year-old than I've ever seen. And he said, this definitely came from her AFib. And, you know, that was a very sobering um, experience to have that happen to a parent when it's something that you study. And, you know, to see that in an actual photograph of what that looked like, I mean, it was a clot and it was really frightening. You know, every time I have a patient in the hospital or the house staff will say, well, you know, I don't really know if we 
want to start the anticoagulant. Let's like, you know, relegate that to the PCP. I mean, I'm like, no way. You can't, we can't do that. I don't know. I just, I, I really think there's a lot at stake when it comes to stroke. And I think, you know, we really have to be aggressive with it. Wow. And I can't even imagine how tough that was to go through. And I really do hope that your mom is okay and, and doing well after all of that. And I also really just, I, I really appreciate throughout this entire episode, you always put things into perspective and really brought it back to the patient. Earlier in the episode, I think you said, if I'm uh, quoting correctly, what am I saying by not writing the prescription? I am saying that it is okay to have an ischemic stroke. And that is, I think, just such a powerful statement and really puts into perspective this idea of fearing the clot and just how scary and how life-changing it is to have an embolic stroke and why this topic matters so much. Right. I do think, you know, bleeding is important too. And I don't want to, you know, come come away with this as saying, you know, no matter what, but you think about the recurrence rates of bleeding. And I think that's important. And it's something that's so understudied. Diverticular bleeding, it's scary when it happens, but the recurrence rate of that GI bleed is about, I don't, I want to say 2% per year. It's not 90% or 60% or 50 or 40 or 30% or 20% or 10%. You know, it's about 3% per year. So if, if a person has one GI bleed, is that an indication for, you know, a watchman or an amplatzer or, you know, left atrial appendage occlusion device? You know, I, I wish that we had more really rigorous research around gastrointestinal bleeding because this is going to be difficult to get away from this because as I said at the beginning, I mean, it's something that happens as we get older and it's uh, not always easy to diagnose. You've had patients that have had the um, EGD, they've had the colonoscopy, they end up getting a video capsule endoscopy and they still can't find the source. I mean, that could be your AVM patient with the bleeding, but you know, it is important to, to try to minimize the risk of that bleeding because that's when patients will stop the treatment and that's when you know hopefully not but that's when the stroke will occur and uh, we want to try to facilitate adherence as much as we can and I think that's one way to do it. Yeah and I really appreciate that and I think once again that just shows always incorporating the patient perspective and always bringing it back to the patient and framing it in the way that this is affecting the patient's life, whether it be bleeding or a stroke. And that's really what, you know, when we talk about, we use the term shared decision-making all the time, and we talk about what to do with these intermediate CHAS2 vascores, but that's really what shared decision-making is about, is trying to come to this middle ground where you're taking the patient's thoughts and ideas and fears and concerns and the guideline information and trying to marry these two things together. And I think you really exemplified and, and showed us how to do that in this episode by sharing your expertise with us and sharing your stories with us and, and sharing all of the patient perspectives that you've seen throughout, you know, a, a very illustrious career in anticoagulation and, and in AFib management. So we really just wanted to, you know, from the bottoms of our heart, thank you for joining us on this episode and, and sharing all of that expertise with us. 
And we also just wanted to thank Dr. John Piccini, who's an electrophysiologist at Duke University, who introduced us to you and was instrumental in making this episode happen. Because without that introduction, we would have never got this just (laughs) absolutely incredible episode and information that you just took us through. Well, it was a real thrill, honestly. And it's like, you know, one of my favorite things is teaching and you know, hopefully being a good role model. And, you know, we're all in this together. I absolutely have cherished my medical career and that intimacy that you have with patients and strangers. And it's just been great. And thank you again. And Puccini is is wonderful. He's a great colleague. We still do studies together. So I'm really glad that he put us together. Absolutely. Well, That's all we have today for everyone. So keep that unhealthy phone attachment going just a little bit longer. You won't want to miss the next episode in our series because we're going to do an even deeper dive into stroke prevention to talk about bridging, anticoagulation after cardioversion, and what to do about episodes of triggered AFib, such as after cardiac surgery. So something you'll definitely want to stay tuned for. See you guys next time. (laughs) 